All right, Bibles open. You have your Bibles tonight? Do you have it? I hope you do. If you don't, just, just chances are if you don't have a Bible, it's because you've got like a Rolodex, just this beautiful memory. You just flip in your mind to, to chapter 8 of Mark in your mind. If you don't have a paper copy, that's all right. We'll allow the electronic versions as well. I think those will let you get into heaven as well if you take notes. Now, if you don't take notes, then it's, you know, it's iffy, but so uh, grab your notepad as well. I'm joking, by the way. This is being recorded. I should be more serious. Turn in your Bibles to Mark 8 and just know that Jesus saves. Okay, so with that said, Mark chapter 8. Here's, here's sort of the big idea that I want us to see. And we've talked about this from, from the very first message in this textual series is simply this, that Jesus is revealing himself as a king who's going to a cross and he is calling to himself a family. Now, the word family isn't showing up in the text, but that's what he's actually creating. He's creating a family. But he begins by calling these first members of what will be his extended family. He calls them disciples. And we've talked about this a lot, that a disciple is simply someone who goes where Jesus goes. Now, now, by the way, we remember this, right? Follow the leader. Have we talked about this before a few times? You have follow the leader. A disciple is simply one who follows the leader. So if the leader is going here, the disciple goes where the leader goes. If the leader does this, the disciple does this. If the leader says that, then the disciple says that, that a disciple is simply one who follows Jesus everywhere and in every way. That is the simple point. And so Jesus has been gathering disciples, but not just disciples. There's crowds of people who are now following Jesus because, and you know this to be true, there are those who are committed to Christ and then there are those who are curious about Christ. And so there are groups of people who are walking with Jesus, who are committed to him and others who are maybe more curious and they're following, but looking and discovering and trying to decide if this man is more than just a novelty or a sideshow, or if he's more than just another free meal of bread and fish. Who is this man? And so people are following him. And Jesus has been developing his disciples. Now, let me give you a little chronology here. Jesus's public ministry, we think, is about 36 months in length, three years. From the moment he is baptized by his half-cousin, I say half-cousin because, you know, biologically Jesus, you know, he's got an earthly mama, not an earthly daddy, but he's got a cousin named John the Baptist because he baptized people. From the moment he goes to the Jordan and is baptized by his cousin until the moment that he ascends back to the Father, there's about three years. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, the first eight chapters cover about two and a half years of that ministry. And you say, really? I mean, we've covered that much? Mark cuts out a ton of the stuff. And in fact, even John will tell us at the end of John's gospel that if we were to record everything that Jesus did, all the moments, all the miracles, all the changed conversations, everything, John says there would not be enough books in all of the world to capture what Jesus did in those three years. Now, whether that's hyperbole or a real concrete statement doesn't matter. The point is we only have little snapshots So in eight chapters, two and a half years, and in those two and a half years, he has spent time primarily 
on the western side of the Sea of Galilee and the western side of the Jordan River. He's been with his people. He spent time down in Judea with Jerusalem. He was healing people and teaching. And then he spent time in the northern portion in Galilee with people healing and teaching. And he comes to the final miracle, which we talked about Sunday, of opening a blind man's eyes because the entire gospel is understood as Jesus coming and giving sight to a blind world. And he comes, he gives the final miracle, and then he takes his followers with him on a road trip. And here's why. The disciples, because they're disciples, they follow Jesus. So Jesus says, hey, fellas, we're going to take a little road trip. They say, yes, sir, where are we going? He goes, hey, just follow me. I'm going to take you. Now, here's what's interesting. We didn't say this Sunday, so I'll mention it now. Jesus takes his followers on a road trip 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Caesarea Philippi. We mentioned this Sunday that it was the sin city, the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Pagan temples, pagan worship, pagan practice, all the things you want to find of the world is there. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine if you were a good little Jewish boy who was brought up under the Mosaic law, the Moses law that says you don't touch certain things, you don't say certain things, you don't go certain places, that it is about cleanliness, you don't defile yourself. And then Jesus says, fellas, we're going to go to Las Vegas. Get your poker chips. No, no, he didn't say that part, okay? But he says, let's go. He takes them up north and they go on this trip. And when they get there, Jesus, looking at all these pagan temples, right, built into the side of Mount Hermon, this great mountain. He says, who do people say I am? As we're evaluating who God is, is it one of these? What about me? Who do people say I am? And the disciples, they give all sorts of answers. They say, well, it's Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the other prophets. And then he asks the important question. He says, well, that's fine, but who do you say I am? And we talked about this Sunday that the most important question you will ever be asked and you'll ever answer is who do you say Jesus is? And Peter, I love Peter, is not one to ever mince words. Have you noticed this? Peter just always has something to say, which I really appreciate that he's the guy who talks. And he says, Jesus, you are the Christ. Now, by the way, If you grew up in church, you heard often Jesus Christ. You heard those together so often. I remember when I was real little, I used to think that Christ was Jesus' last name. Like he was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. That that was just, you know, he was raised and, you know, Joseph the Christ, Mary the Christ, and their son Jesus the Christ. And that's not it at all. Rather, Christ comes from the Greek word Christo, which is the Greek word for Messiah. We've talked about this, the king, the anointed one. Peter is making a declaration that Jesus is the one chosen by God to fix all that is broken in the world. But here's the problem. Peter gets the title right. He gets the person of Jesus correct. But he doesn't see fully what that means. And so Jesus does what Jesus always does. He takes us where we are. Aren't you glad he always takes you where you are? That he'll meet you where you are. He doesn't expect you to be somewhere else. He'll take you where you are. He takes them where they are and he goes, boy, Peter. 
God revealed this to you. You say, I don't see that in Mark. That's because Mark doesn't include that little detail. If you want the fuller story, go to Matthew 16. Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Peter. For man did not reveal this to you, but God himself showed you who I was. By the way, anytime someone comes to faith, anytime someone declares Jesus is Lord, it is because they have had an interaction with God Almighty. And so he says, you are Messiah. And Peter goes, boy, you got the person correct. And Jesus says, now let me show you what it means for me to be Messiah. He got the person correct, but now Jesus has to give Peter the correct path of the Messiah. And so we're going to walk through what this looks like. And here's just a few things that we're going to see tonight. And I'm going to invite you if you want. I've got some blanks. How many of you like to fill in the blanks? You kind of feel better if you have notes and stuff. This is for you, okay? So you just write this in your book or wherever you'd like. But this is where we are. This is verse 31. Jesus began to teach them. He's going he's to begin to show them. This is chapter 8, verse 31. And Jesus is about to begin to teach them what it looks like for Jesus to be Messiah. It's one thing to be called Messiah. It's another thing to be Messiah. That the person must match the path. And so he says, let me show you what it means for me to be Messiah. He says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man. Now let's pause there. That phrase, Son of Man, is used 88 times in the Bible. 84 of those times, Jesus, or in the Gospels, it is referred to Jesus. This is Jesus' favorite term for himself. You say, well, what does it mean? Does it mean that he's simply saying, I'm the son of a man? Well, in part, yes, he is a son. And yes, he is fully man and fully God. So sure. But it refers back to the Old Testament prophet of Daniel, chapter 7 and verse, I think, 13 and 14, where Daniel sees a vision. And he sees one, we're told, who looks like or is like the son of man. And the son of man comes before another character whose title is the Ancient of Days. That is a title for God, the Father. And so from Daniel chapter 7 onward, people began to wait for and expect Messiah to be the Son of Man, this one who who, who is elevated and who fixes all that's broken. So Jesus says, hey, the Son of Man. And they're all like, yes, the Son of Man. This is Him. This is it. This is great. We know who the person is. And He says this, though. He says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man, say this next word with me. Ma, do, you, do you guys have the next word by chance? Well, what is the next word? Let's just do it this way. What do you have as the very next word after Son of Man? Must. Must. Let's just put that word right here, shall we? Right in the middle. Because this is going to be kind of an important word. The Son of Man must, what's the next word you have? Suffer. The Son of Man must suffer. You can almost hear, how many of you know what a, I know the crowd I'm working with, you all remember record players? (laughs) By the way, did you know they've become cool again? My brother-in-law, he's 29 years old. He has a record player, built-in speakers in it. He will not buy CDs if he can, uh, or download music or anything. He won't do any of that stuff. He buys the old records or new records, I guess, now, and he'll play those on there. And I'm like, that's neat. Why do you do that? He goes, oh, it's got such an authentic sound to it. I'm like, 
Yeah, whatever. And so, I mean, he's just sort of a musician type. This is that moment where Jesus says, I must suffer that you can almost hear the record go, where the music stops, the conversation ends. People pause, they look up, they listen, they go, wait a minute, what are you talking about? This is not what we were told Messiah would do. Their picture of Messiah, because they had been taught from little children all the way up that Messiah was going to be a great military and political leader who would come to the forefront, rally the troops, gather the armies, push out the enemies, and establish God's kingdom on earth. That was their vision. And they could take you to the Old Testament passages that seem to teach all these things. And so when Jesus says the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer, they go, wait a minute. But he doesn't end there. Notice the next thing he says. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, And teachers of the law, in other words, he's going to be rejected by the church, by the preachers, by the theologians. He's going to be rejected by those who should know him better than anyone else. Isn't it true that sometimes we've become so familiar with Scripture that we don't see what is staring us in the face in Scripture? And so he says he must be rejected by these people. And then that he, do you notice that little word again in here? Do you see it a second time? And that he must what, church? Be killed. And after three days, rise again. And after all this, you can just hear it. Peter's like, man, I already got one answer correct. I'm going to go for round two with another really good answer. And so his first answer, Jesus, you are the Christ. He got a good attaboy from Jesus. He's like, all right, fine. Jesus, let, let, let's just have a conversation. You will not die. You can't die. That's not the way it'll work. And in fact, it doesn't just say that he suggests it. Do you notice the word describing the way that Peter addresses Jesus? He rebuked him. Fun fact, that word rebuke is the exact same Greek word that Jesus uses when he is speaking to the demons. When Jesus casts them out or when he tells them to be quiet, he rebukes them. Peter is speaking to Jesus as Jesus spoke to demons. Quick question. We all know there are good ideas and there are bad ideas in life. Good idea? Combing your hair with a brush. Bad idea? Combing your hair with a porcupine. There are good ideas and bad ideas. Quick question. Rebuking the Son of God. Good idea or bad idea? Bad idea. And so Jesus says what to Peter here? Look at what it says here. He says exactly. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebukes Peter. So he turns it back on him and says, get behind me Satan. Now let's pause there. Why does he call Peter Satan? Think back with me for a moment here. I'm sorry, say what now, Jack? Yeah, see, I agree with you. Some folks say, well, this is hyperbole. He's just overstating it. No, no, no. Remember, earlier in the text, the very first thing that happens when Jesus 
is baptized. What is the very first thing that happens to Jesus after his baptism? The temptations. He is taken out. The Holy Spirit takes him out into the wilderness where he is alone in the wilderness for 40 days. He doesn't eat anything. He's hungry. And we're told both in, or in all three of the three, first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the devil comes and tempts him. If you go to Matthew's account and Luke's account, we are told what those temptations were. Turn these rocks into bread. Throw yourself off from the temple. The angels will carry you away. The people will see it. Be blown away. Bow down to me and I will just give you the kingdom and all the people of the earth. You won't have to die. Here's what's interesting. Different temptations, but they are all temptations about accomplishing God's purpose, but avoiding God's path. Jesus, you don't have to die. All you need to do Throw yourself off the temple. And when those angels catch you and people see it, they won't be able to deny that you are God. You won't have to die if you do that. Jesus, just bow down to me. And if you do that, I will give you the kingdoms of the earth. You don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. See, often temptation is about not bad things, but simply doing something outside of the way that God has called us to do it. And so we're told in Luke chapter 4 and verse 13 that when the devil left Jesus, we're told that, quote, he left until an opportune time arose. This is that time. And God says, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Is it because he's mad at Peter? No. Notice what he says next. He says this. He says, you do not have in mind the things of God. Jesus has said that he will suffer, he will die, and he will rise on the third day. That this is the path of the Messiah. That this is an absolute must. No other way around it. Hey, let's just talk about this word must for a minute here. Somebody help me out here. When When you... Think of the word must. Can you give me some synonyms, some words that are similar to or say the same thing as the word must? What's that? Should, Should maybe. Yeah. Okay. What else? Have to. Have to. That, yeah. Inevitable, perhaps? Required? Necessary. Necessary. Is, do you notice this? He is saying this is not optional. This is the way things are. Now, here's what's interesting about this. This event takes place about six months before Jesus goes to the cross. Yet he knows with absolute certainty not only what will happen, but why it must happen. A question that came up a couple weeks ago, someone asked, why does Jesus keep all of these things he's doing a secret? He's constantly telling people, don't tell anyone. Don't share this with anyone. Don't do it. Here's why. Jesus knows what must happen and how it must happen, and he will not let other people dictate his timetable. Don't share that. The time is not right. Don't go there. The time is not right. So Jesus is very in line with what must happen. Now, here's the thing about the word must. It is necessary, but it also tells us a few things that I think are incredibly important. Here's the first thing it tells us. If Jesus knows that this must happen, 
happen, it means he knows something that we don't about God's plan. It means that God and Jesus from before time began conspired together to buy us back. He already has figured out the plan, meaning that this isn't the work of men as though God is being forced into something he does not want to do. Rather, God Almighty is working his plan even through the wicked actions of others. By the way, don't you ever think for a moment when you see evil people getting away with things that they are getting won over on God. He is not thwarted by anyone's actions. Rather, as we are told in the story of Joseph from Genesis Chapter 50, Joseph, he's been sold into slavery. Things are horrible, but eventually he's raised to second in command in Egypt and he's reunited with his no good scoundrel brothers who had sold him into slavery to begin with. They're terrified that he's going to kill them now that he's got the power and they don't. And he says, chill. That's the 21st century version of what he says. Chill. What you meant for evil, God meant for evil good. It must happen. Don't you know that in days to come, when they were thinking about what is going on, when they saw their Savior on the cross, when they reflected on it, how this word must have comforted them to know this is not the work of evil men getting one over on God. This is God finishing what he began before time began. It must happen. The other thing, when you think of the word must, it's not simply the plan of God. But you understand that Jesus must die in a legal sense. Here's what I mean by this. There is a price for sin, correct? Let's try this again. Is there a price for sin, family? Awesome, good. All right, here we go. And you you say, I've always heard this, but what does that mean? let's Let's just talk for a minute here. When... Someone wrongs another person, it creates a debt between them. Let's use a very tangible example. Suppose, uh, uh, here's an example I heard from Tim Keller, great example. Suppose someone breaks one of your lamps in your living room. Come over to your house, they bump into it, lamp falls over, it's broken. You have two choices at that point. Option number one, that'll be $100, thank you very much. They have to pay for what was broken. There is a price for what was broken, correct? And you're saying, you pay it. Option number two, I forgive you. You don't have to pay it. Now you say, great, the debt has been paid. No, it hasn't, has it? You've still got a broken lamp, don't you? You got a couple options. Either live in that room without light or because you have forgiven the one who broke the lamp, you have to pay to get a new one. Don't, please never, never confuse this idea that, well, why doesn't God just sort of forgive and forget? There is a price for what we've done, a debt. There is a brokenness, and we know this relationally. So someone does something wrong to you. You have two options. Option one, you make them pay. So maybe someone stabs you in the back in a job and they get the next promotion. Or someone treats you unkindly or speaks ill of you or gossips about you or whatever it may be. You have two options. Option one, you try to make them pay. By the way, how well does that usually work? You might get to make them pay. But here's what's interesting. In making someone else pay for what they've done wrong, 
we almost always end up sinning ourselves in the process, don't we? So we don't actually undo the problem. We simply contribute more to the greater debt. So option one, you make them pay. Option two, though, is what we would say, we forgive the debt. I forgive you. I'm not going to retaliate. But what that means is now you have to pay the emotional debt, don't you? Um, Husbands, wives. Let's just do it this way. Um, I won't ask specifics, but just think with me for a minute here. Have you ever had a moment in your marriage where you didn't quite do everything just right? Let's back up. Let's do it this way. That's a little too personal. How about this? Has your spouse ever done it? Don't you dare raise your hand or amen or elbow. Otherwise, that would be something that you're going to have another conversation about debts later, okay? But has your spouse ever done something that wasn't just quite right and you felt hurt or wounded? You have the option of trying to make them pay or say, I forgive but then you end up having to pay the emotional or relational debt because now you have to, I I feel angry, I feel hurt, but I'm not going to push it on them. I'm going to absorb that. Here's what you need to understand. When Jesus says he must suffer, die, and rise, it wasn't simply that because this is God's arbitrary plan, but it's because we have created a cosmic debt. And he says, someone's got to pay. And you don't have the money to pay the kind of debts you owe. I must do this. Now, this is the person of Jesus and the path of Jesus. By the way, when you think about a person, another way to think of this would be, this is the job description and the title of the job. So what are some other jobs and job description? For instance, we have bakers. What do bakers do? They bake. We're not going to go much deeper than that. I'm not a very smart guy. So, okay, they bake, right? Uh, A pilot of an airplane. What does a pilot do? Flies the plane. You've got a title. You've got a person. You've got a path. You've got a title. You've got a job description. Uh, What about this one? A plumber. What does a plumber do? Pull up their pants. Correct. (laughs) After that, what do they do? They fix leaks. Very clear job description. Now, here's the thing. If a baker does not bake, is the baker still a baker? I mean, if the baker won't bake, it's just a title, but it means nothing. Um, If a pilot will not fly planes or anything, does she remain a pilot? No. If a plumber will not... Fix pipes, toilets, sinks. Not a plumber. You can call him one. Doesn't make him one. Hey, what about this word up here? Disciple. A disciple, we said, does what? Follows Jesus. If a disciple won't follow Jesus, then does that disciple remain a disciple? No, and now we're getting to the most provocative passage, the one that I wish Jesus had not included, but we're going to include it since he did, okay? He says, this is my path. 
This is who I am, my personage, my path. Now, you as the people of God, as disciples, he's about to show us our path. Are you ready? We've got just a few minutes and then we'll call it a night. But I want you to see this. Notice what he says next. Then after Peter makes this declaration, you won't suffer all this. And Jesus says, yes, I will. And by the way, Satan, you get out of here. You do not. Let me try that again. Out of here. You do not have the things of God in mind. He then says, let me clarify the path of every disciple as well. You're not the right hand of a general going in to slaughter people. You are a different kind of follower. And this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. He says, verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. I love that. He's making an open invitation, but he is not hiding the ball. Have you ever heard of a bait and switch? You know what a bait and switch is, church? Hey, come on in. We've got this great deal on this item. You come on in. It's going to be fantastic. People come in. Oh, we don't have that anymore, but we have this other thing that you might like. Bait. Come on, try it. Oh, switch. Here's what we actually have. I'm afraid the reason we see people leaving the church is not because there were so many people in the church but rather because for many years we did a bait and switch. We talked about all the benefits. We just didn't talk about the problems and challenges of following Jesus. But do you notice Jesus doesn't do that? He says, if any man, notice this, if any man, anyone, any woman, if anyone would come after me, notice this, he, what's that word? Must, same word. In the same way Jesus says it's non-negotiable, non-negotiable, non-negotiable. I must suffer, die, and rise. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, you're welcome to. But understand, you must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. I want to give you three words. If you want to jot these down, just remember three things. Here's the very first one. If you're to follow Jesus, Jesus says very clearly, the first one is simply this, you've got to deny yourself. This is a hard one because we live in a world that tells you you need to gratify every desire you have, doesn't it? Hey, if you're hungry, what should you do tonight? You should eat. And by the way, if you eat, you should absolutely eat those Oreos. You should eat a good glass of milk. If you can eat milk, you should drink it, whatever. By the way, my wife, we were um, at the beach last week, and she bought, oh, she is, a, she is an angel in human form. She bought these little thin Oreos that have coconut-flavored icing in between. Any of you like coconut stuff? It, I'll see you in heaven. It is fantastic. <laughs> they are so good. So if you crave a food, you eat it, Right? The world says if you crave a particular drink, you drink it. If you want to sit and chill regardless of what responsibilities you have, you sit and you relax. If you have a sexual desire, you just fulfill it. The world says don't deny yourself. Don't deny who you are. Jesus says if you want to follow me, you will by definition have to deny the base, broken, natural, by world standards, desires that often are in competition. Because I cannot follow you if I am gratifying everything about me. 
It is impossible to follow Jesus wherever he goes if I'm constantly saying yes to everything I want. That's why he says, you must. He's not being mean. He's just being logical. It's a logical impossibility to follow and gratify everything I want. You must deny yourself. Second word you might want to jot down here is take up your cross. Your cross. Now, this is before the death of Jesus. So you say, well, why would they understand what this means if they don't have not yet seen Jesus die? Well, here's the interesting thing about this. The Roman Empire had really mastered the art of the execution. Rome was the empire of the world. And Rome became symbolic of the mindset, the worldview, the ethos of that world. Rome was all that was bad and wrong. And if you rebelled against Rome, do you know how they liked to kill rebels? On a cross. Crucifixion. And the way it worked, they did not, I know in a lot of the movies and stuff that we watch, you see Jesus carrying the cross and he's got the long beam and then he's got the cross beam and he's kind of doing this. That's not the way it would work. For you to carry your cross, they did not require that you carry the long beam. They would have that already waiting for you at your place of execution. Rather, they would strap the cross beam to your shoulder and you would carry it. Hands stuck, walking. And Jesus is saying, you will have to be ready to say no to the world, to deny those cravings. But when you do, understand the world will look at you and say, we don't like that you're not like us. You need to be ready for the eventuality that the world will want to do you harm. It's not reported on very regularly, but do you know right now the most persecuted group of people in the world are Christians? You don't hear about it in the news, but the reality is, statistically speaking, a hundred Christ followers are executed every day around the world. One hundred. It is not simply, it is not simply It is not simply that we deny ourselves, but when you are going against the cultural norms, do not be surprised if the culture says we don't like what you're doing. And I love what one theologian said. He said, look, it's not that Jesus is saying your death is a certainty, but rather that every morning when you wake up, you stretch, you get out of bed, get a drink of water, get your clothes on, wash your face. You go ahead and just strap on your cross beam because you know And you are willing to follow Jesus, even if it means right into the teeth of an opposing culture. If you would follow Jesus, it means that you will deny yourself and that you will not be like everyone else. And then the third thing, though, notice this. Verse 35 says this, for whoever wants to save his what? Himself. Does anyone else have another word there as well? Life. If anyone wants to save his life, by the way, why in the world, why in the world would I choose not to be obedient to Jesus from time to time? To save my life. By the way, interestingly enough, if you want to notice this, these are actually parallel to Jesus. When you deny yourself, does that sometimes lead to a little bit of suffering? Even if it's, boy, I sure would like to eat that, but I really shouldn't. The cross and his death. And then this third one, this word life. 
you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. Now, here's what's interesting. That word life comes from the Greek word, and there's a lot of words Jesus could have used here, but Jesus hand-shows a word. The word he used is the Greek word psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E. There's other words he could have used for this. The word psyche, it's where we get our word psychology, uh, the way we think, the way we identify, It is our identity. Jesus is literally saying here, if anyone would come after him, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow him. If we want to save our identity, we will lose it. But if we lose our identity, we will save it. You say, what does that have to do with anything? Uh, The world, every culture, it doesn't matter where you live, around the world, every culture has a list of things It says you ought to do, you must do to know who you really are, to have an identity, to be a person of value, a person of worth. So you achieve this, you attain that, you do this, and then you are a somebody, you have an identity. And Jesus is saying, how's that working for you? How many of you have watched Dr. Phil before? Don't you love how he just like, he'll ask the questions like, well, how's that working for you? So he's listening to someone who's absolutely blown up their life, who's doing all the wrong things, and he sort of pauses. How's that working for you? That's what Jesus is doing. He's like, you want to save your life. So you are trying to grab all the things the world says you need to have this identity. And Jesus is saying, how's that working for you? You're trying to save your life and you're just spending it away. You're losing it. But anyone who will lose their life, who will give it up for, Jesus says, him and, I love this, and the gospel, you will get a life. The thing that you're wanting, that sense of identity, the sense of purpose, of significance, of satisfaction, of security, of knowing that you are a somebody, that will come when you pursue Jesus with all your worth. Notice this, that you deny yourself, you will follow the path of Jesus with suffering. Be prepared to die, to carry that cross in the face of adversity, that a culture that doesn't like Jesus isn't going to like you at times. But the promise is, if you will follow the path of the disciple, you will receive the life that you don't even know that you want. And then Jesus, I love what he does as we come to the close. He makes a statement, look, if you deny me on this earth, I'm going to deny you. The contrast is also true. Elsewhere, he'll say, but look, if you will confess me, I'm going to tell my daddy, I know you. You're you're my boy. You're my girl. I tell you, the most beautiful moment is when I see little kids out here in the hall and I hear the voice of a parent and usually it's, you know, in that moment, you've seen this where the little kid just hears the voice of the mom or the dad calling that child and the kid's eyes brighten and they run and they jump into the parent's arms. Usually these are really little kids because at some point they don't do that anymore. But it's the most beautiful thing. And Jesus Is making a declaration. Look, you seek life in me. I'm going to hold you forever. Now, one last thing that happens. It's outside of our text. It happens next. We're going to get into this Sunday, but just a teaser here. 
Six days after this event, after Jesus lays down the path of a disciple that says, if you are really a disciple, you must. And if you don't see this happening, then you need to rethink if you're really a follower of mine. But six days later, six days, Jesus takes a few of his disciples up onto a mountain. And while they are there, Jesus peels away the skin of his humanity and they see him in a way that no one had ever seen Jesus. And Moses and Elijah appear. And a cloud comes down. The cloud was always symbolic in the Old Testament of the presence of God. It comes down and an audible voice says, This is my son. Do what he says. And Peter James and John are so overwhelmed that Peter says, let's stay here forever. Forget the rest of the world. Forget family. Forget everything. He doesn't even talk about where we're going to get food. It's just all I want is to be here because it is so overwhelming and powerful. Now listen to this. If they had not chosen to follow Jesus, they would have missed out on seeing something no one else had ever seen. But because they said, we'll follow you, they experienced something that no one else had ever experienced. And as you follow Jesus, isn't it true that you see things and experience things that had you not followed Jesus, you'd never see or experience? And we're told that at the end of time, when the last trumpet sounds, all those who have followed him, even into the jaws of death itself, will see something that no one else has ever seen. The welcoming throng of Christ saying, come home. And it won't be a moment on a mountain, but it will be eternity with our Savior. This is the path of the disciples. Let's follow it. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you, Jesus, for revealing yourself and the path that you walk as well as the one that we must walk. Lord, I pray that you give each person in this room the courage and the conviction to follow you wherever you lead. Lord, may we follow you wholeheartedly knowing that although for the moments there will be Moments of suffering and perhaps even death, we know, we know, we know that there is coming a life eternal and that even now we can experience a depth of life beyond our own ability. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.